Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Politicana. Today we're on episode 137. My name is Tyler. Of course you got Pratik and Nick here as well. As always we're going to be jumping right into the stories of the week. We got some big Supreme Court stories but before that please follow the podcast. Please share it with any of your friends. We really appreciate it as we're headed towards election season. Want to make sure reasonable uh, conversations getting out there in the zeitgeist. So with that we're going to be kicking it off with the Supreme Court. Pratik what is going on? So the Supreme Court goes ham this week. In a series of landmark decisions, the Supreme Court has made significant changes that impact college admissions, student loan relief debt, and the balance between religious freedoms and sexual orientation. The first ruling struck down affirmative action in college admissions, stating that race cannot be a factor in decisions, declaring race-conscious admissions plans conducted by Harvard University and the University of North Carolina as unconstitutional. This decision, authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, emphasized the need for colorblind criteria. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who dissented, called the ruling both tragic and a subversion of equal protection. Based on polling conducted by AP NORC, 63% of Americans support considering race as part of the admissions process, but do not believe it should play a crucial role. At the moment, nine states already prohibit considering race in admissions, and their public universities experience a decline in minority enrollment. The court then invalidated President Biden's $400 billion student loan debt relief plan, deeming it as an unlawful exercise of power. The court found that the plan lacked explicit approval from Congress and did not meet necessary criteria. Divided 6-3 along ideological lines, the justices found that the plan lacked explicit approval from Congress. The relief plan, which aimed to cancel up to $20,000 in debt for eligible borrowers, would have approximately assisted in writing off student loan debt for approximately $43 million, and the plan would have cost over $400 billion. This setback puts pressure on the administration to find alternative ways of addressing the issue of student loan debt. And lastly, the court's ruling in 303 Creative LLC versus Ellenis prioritized religious freedoms over sexual orientation. The decision favored a website designer who objected to creating designs for a same-sex weddings based on her belief. This establishes a precedent that favors religious freedoms over sexual preferences, despite being both protected classes. These Supreme Court rulings mark significant shifts in policies and provide a new perspective on constitutional rights along with a fresh set of precedents. So, Nick and Teller, what are your thoughts on the Supreme Court? Yeah, before we dive into all that, isn't it kind of interesting how they dump that on everyone before going on a three-month vacation? Like, guys, we're just going to hit every major topic, and we're going to go silent for the next few months. Um, that's, that's a bit ridiculous. But look, these are our big decisions, all things we've talked about before. Starting at the beginning, starting with the affirmative action case. Personally, I think it should be more income-based or at least um, look at take into account income levels more than it does right now and not be solely race-based. But at the same time, there are historic injustices, obviously, with certain groups in this country. They obviously had negative impacts on their outcomes, their education, and all that. And because of that, that's why we have affirmative action in the first place. But then you'll have someone like Thomas Sowell come out and say, because you're allowing these students to enter these colleges that maybe they wouldn't have qualified for otherwise, people look at them negatively. And because people look at them negatively, maybe their performance isn't going to be as good as because uh, because of that. And, and all, all in, it's just going to create a toxic environment that's not meritocratic and the kind of environment we want to see in America. So obviously a very contentious issue, but uh, you know they laid down the ruling here. Nick, what are your thoughts on this affirmative action case? 
Oh my God, you're going to start right off the bat asking me about affirmative action. You don't want my thoughts on the web design uh, thing with, uh, in any case. <laughs> we'll so, get there too, man. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, I mean, we okay. Gotta, gotta... So affirmative action, like you said, there are a bunch of historical injustices that contributed to this, specifically in the, in the case of UNC, which was party to this case. Black students were not allowed to enroll in that university up until the 60s, I believe. So absolutely, it makes sense to have the reverse policy to encourage more black students than otherwise would be encouraged to attend if they were prohibitively barred from attending the institution in the very first place. That makes a lot of sense. You know, 100 years from now, I would hope that affirmative action is no longer needed, like in the very far future. What is the point? That you could say it would be acceptable and not, and, have it. and that's the that, that's thing. the question that everyone's trying to ask. Because a lot of people would say right now it's kind of irrelevant. Uh, it's more, like I said, based on income than it is specifically based off race at this point. So what is the tipping point, and do we have to go past the tipping point to recognize what it is? Yeah, that's a really good question. Frankly, I don't know. Like, do you wait one generation? Do you wait two generations? Three? Um, I think most people would probably say not indefinitely, right? Um, however, I think it definitely depends, right? If someone immigrates to the country, let's say, um, you know, right now I'm in school um, and one of the people I go to school with, he's from Nigeria. And he was saying that he really didn't understand racial dynamics in the United States because for him, it was a little bit different than someone who, for example, would be descended from slaves. So if you're an American descended from slaves, I feel like it's just a very different background than someone coming necessarily from you know, Nigeria. And let's let's be honest, like the people going to Harvard, like you were saying, it's not people from low income communities that are going to Harvard, maybe in some cases, but by and large, it's like upper middle class and rich, you know, white people, minorities. I, I don't know. I feel like Harvard as an institution isn't exactly a place where you really see. And I, th I think I did see uh, this number where it's like the there's more people in the top 10% of income in the United States attending Harvard than in the bottom 60%. So it's very much, you know, weighted in, in terms of that. But at the same time, you would say, well, that's a failure of the school system leading up to that. And therefore, I, I think to answer your question, honestly, I don't know what the cut, like, I don't know what year. I don't know if it's 2040. I don't know if it's, I, I couldn't give you a single year to say this is the point at which this is no longer needed. Frankly, I, I'm just not sure. Yeah, but I, and and I think that's the point we're all at the question we're all asking. But it it, it seems pretty clear that the, the Supreme Court has made their judgment on that and what they think that point is. They think that point is now. So moving on, Pratik, what do you think about? So I'm happy about this decision for a few reasons. I think that the problem is is that regardless of whether uh, whether an outcome is good. The policy behind it, in my opinion, is discriminatory. Whenever you're comparing people based on their races, you're looking that at that as a qualifier. You can't change your race. I, I'm Indian. I'm not going to become any other race. I'm always going to be Indian. So the problem is, is that you're looking at a physical trait of somebody, and that's going to determine whether somebody's going to get into a school or not. Now, I do understand that it's better to diversify. We need to go through these processes. We need to have more multiracial schools and all this stuff. I'm not against that i am just against the philosophy that this should be an indicator whether somebody gets in or not now i do think a lot of things especially on income lines plays a big role there's people that are going to be whether white or black or asian or whatever they're racist based on where they live it's going to influence you know their income levels they're gonna is gonna influence like you know what kind of schooling that they got which is going to influence whether they would make a good candidate for the school or whether they have enough money to enter that school 
All of that thing, all of those things are indicators. But see, the problem with it is whether or not affirmative action is there, racism is still going to exist. It's not going to change anything in the entire education selection process. And I'll give you an example for it. If I have, um, I'll give you this example. So let's say with every, for all of us minorities, so like with Asians and white people, we tend to have more, you know, acceptance into these schools. So like, sure, with Asians, they are like don't compare Asians and white people. Kind of, Asians do way better than white people in getting that into is the true. schools, including and, Indians. Yeah, and Indians tend to face a lot of discrimination based on AA policies because it's a quota system basically, so they can only accept a limited amount of Indians. But now the problem with this is that we all have certain names we can already determine what somebody is based on their name if somebody's like called Pratik Patel are you thinking oh man that's a white guy's name you know Pratik Patel like no with the name you can figure out four different things you can figure out the religion of the person you can figure out the culture of the person you can figure out the identity of the person and you can also probably figure out like you know what where they're from originally so with Pratik Patel you know that I'm an Indian you know I'm a Hindu and that kind of narrows that down other names are pretty similar like that too Hispanic names Hispanic people whether or not you have like you know you put it in your application process that someone's a Hispanic or a Latino if your name is like Miguel Hernandez Rodriguez Cabrera I'm pretty sure you know that they're not a white person or a black person you could probably narrow it down to being a Hispanic person. You wouldn't be able to know where, what part of Hispanic America, what part of the Hispanic world that they come from. They may be Cuban, they may be Dominican, they may be Puerto Rican, they may be Mexican, but you can narrow down that they're Hispanic or Latino. So that's two of them. Same with Islamic names. If your name is like Muhammad Faraz or Abdullah um, Aziz or anything like those names, then narrows down that group of people right and then with african americans it is more mixed because many of them have very americanized names and then they also have some names that are pretty african-american styled names so in terms of names that discrimination is going to happen regardless i would argue that you should have a blind resume process that you literally just look at the person's credentials and then you figure out what their name is that'd be the better way of going about this but in terms of the policies itself, profiling will always exist. Whether or not schools do it, um, you know, legally or illegally, they're still going to do it. And, you know, every single school, and I know this because me and Tyler both went to Elon. When we went to Elon, how much diverse population was there in the school? There's not much, but, you know, every single, uh, every single admissions, like, you know, brochure that you saw, every single thing that they did in the admissions building was always focused on diversity. They were even, like, recruiting tour guides that were diverse to make sure that the school looks more diverse than it actually is. All of these things are what every single university does. This is what they do. They try to promote their diversity inclusion programs. They try to promote that the school is racially diverse and is not homogeneously white. And that's part of what all the schools do in terms of their selling advertising process. But in the end of the day, they're going to still do that whether or not you choose, uh, you know, like what type of race you are in your application. And some people don't even choose to answer that question. So you get to that point where these things are issues, but I do think that these issues will always remain issues. I do think that at the same time, it is not as bad as people will make it out to be. I don't think that if you eliminate AA that there's going to be no black people that you enroll in the school. That's not going to happen. There are really intelligent people of all races in our country. It's not like all white people are the only ones getting into the schools. If you even look at it in the racial, in the demographic income level aspect, there's as many rich white people as there are really poor white.
white people. And that's because there are just a lot more white people in this country than every other race. So in all those aspects, I just think that we have to forget about like the big, the big policy itself, in my opinion, is racist. I don't think that any types of changes to that policy is going to make that big of a difference because profiling is still going to happen based on names. But even then, I just think that if an outcome is good, if this does allow you to have more inclusion and diversity by schools basically discriminating against races, saying that they want this many white people and this many black people and this many Asian people, they're still going to do that. But by this court at least saying that that's an illegal practice for you to discriminate against people and putting them in quotas, at least that, at least that makes it like good in some aspect that at least the Supreme Court is acknowledging that racism is bad and we shouldn't have racism involved in the school selections in terms of race. So that's my theory about this. And again, I know Nick is going to disagree with me, but I'm, I've thought Pratik, about this Why a would lot. I disagree with you? You literally talked about your own experience yeah. as someone that's who's true. in a group, which like you've talked about it before on the show where I don't think you've used the term overrepresented minority. But if you look at the breakdown of how schools listed out, it's underrepresented minorities and overrepresented minorities. And like you were saying, Indians will fall on that lighter that um, that list of being overrepresented, like you said. Um, and that'll be a, sort of a point against them. And is that fair? You know, no, it, it doesn't seem like that face value. Um, what I wanted to ask is, you know, one thing that has come up in sort of in response to this is, okay, well, if you want to totally level the playing field and get rid of affirmative action, why don't you get rid of legacy admissions as well? Where basically for Harvard, when it came out, you actually had, I think it was double the points assigned to you as an applicant. If you were the child of a legacy admit, um, than someone who is from a minority group. And so does that not tilt the scale even more in favor of people I who think already it does, are... But you, can't, but you can't get rid of it because they get funding from yeah. the alumni. So the right, alumni the expect center, right. their yeah. kids to be able to go to the school. So that's just that. a circular... I mean, that's nepotism. Morally, I know we can all rationalize that. it and explain why the schools would prefer legacies because of yeah. more donations coming in down the line. It makes it's sense. But at the same time, like... Just, I guess, on a moral basis, like if we're saying we need to level the playing field so that everyone has an equal opportunity at getting into the same college, regardless of their race, regardless of their background, what have you. You shouldn't um, have legacy students. I agree. Okay. With you. I was just curious. Yeah, but, 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 but we don't live in an ideal yeah, world. Like, this it. is the issue. Morally, I mean, morally, I'm 100% in agreement with you. I just think, you know, from a practical perspective, I mean, look, I haven't donated that much money to my schools that I went to. I mean, I'm sure if my kids wanted to go to the same schools, I may donate a little bit more. But now if I was like a billionaire guy and I had a lot of money to spend and I wanted to try to get some money, to, I don't have to pay all this money in tax, then I would donate to those schools because I don't want to pay as much money in tax. I just think it all varies. That's why really rich people donate more money. That's why the schools get really rich people. And for the most part, because, you know, if before like the 1960s, a majority of the people in our country were that were really rich were white people that's a tip the scales in the favor of that of that race but i do think in the future that's going to change it's not like all white people in this country are wealthy you have as many poor white people in this country as you have rich white people but the fact is that there are just so many more white people in this country that if you look at it in terms of per capita if you look at it in terms of demographics if you look at it like how many what percentage of the percentage of the of the race is wealthy you're going to see more white people in this country wealthy but i just think that it's not a very good indicator because at the same time like you know you might whatever area you're from wherever you're from originally 
depending on your background, if you're immigrated here, if you're first generation, whether you're third generation, that's all going to influence things. And to be honest, white and black and Hispanic and Asian are all really racist demographic scales in the first place. If you're white, you could be Irish, you could be Scottish, you could be British, you could be French, you could be from America originally. I mean, you could be from like, you could be Dutch. That's so, so many different aspects. Then like, look at Tyler. Like if Tyler didn't tell me he was Italian, I wouldn't necessarily know he was Italian. I would just be like, oh, he's white, but that's pretty racist, right? Because Tyler's Italian. You're Russian, same thing. Like, my point is, is that that's white. Then same thing with black. You could be from, yeah. you could be African-American. So you could, your family might have, you know, you were originally slaves and then you were brought to this country. You could be from Nigeria. You could be from Somalia. You could be from Ethiopia. But they're all categorized in black. Same with the Hispanic community. Puerto Ricans, Cubans, Mexicans, like, um, you know, Bolivians, Guatemalans. Everybody is Hispanic American. It's not just what race you are. You brought up the point yeah. about immigration. And I think this is actually the biggest point. And this is the issue. It's like, let's say you are African American. The people that are coming in as immigrants, these Asians, even people from Africa are generally the top of the top in those countries, which is why a lot of these ethnic groups are making more money because they're they're the top of whatever that country they're coming from. Yeah, I think so the in a way, example is the In a way, Indies. the affirmative yeah. action, it's like if you're going to protect people, maybe it should be homegrown Americans, let's say, not immigrants, because those seem to be the people that suffer the most. I mean, we talk about white people. It's like if you're looking at the median income of just white people, they're not that high on that list. You know, it, it's, it's like maybe like 60,000 a year and uh, Asians are making like $100,000. I, I so because of that, because, but, but here's the thing. Yeah. Like at the same time, I want to play devil's advocate for you, Pratik. It's like, let's say all the top 10 universities in the country are all only Asians from China. We only have Chinese Asians, but it's a purely meritocratic based system. Is that okay with you? Because that could be an inevitable outcome if we have no other factors being taken into account here, except for pure merit, which yeah. on the one hand sounds okay, because it's like you want the best students to, to do well. But the other, on the other hand, it's like, don't you want you know Americans, let's say, or people being born and raised in this country to also do well, and not just the immigrants that are coming in? See, my theory with that would just be that I don't think that would ever happen because I really don't think that merit-based will ever allow that really. I just think what that would do though is it would actually, it would create some other issues. It would just create that main issue that, oh, some students are not really good test takers and some students are not really like good in school, but then, you know, overall qualities, there might be a better fit for the school. You have all these other aspects. That's the challenges with merit-based. But if that was to happen where you only had Chinese students in a school, then I think that the same people that are complaining for having affirmative action would be complaining against it. It's the same logic. It's a circular logic argument. Like whether or not the policy is the the policy is racist. So the outcome, regardless of whatever it is, like you can justify the outcome. But if the actual policy is racist, no matter what you do, the policy is still going to be racist. If the outcome is good, people are going to be happy. If the outcome is bad, then people are going to be like, oh, there's a problem with the system. But that argument will always exist regardless. If even if you had a merit-based system, if there was a situation where like in the future, because white people tend to have less kids than some of these other minority groups, if in the future, Hispanics and African-Americans tended to have more students that were enrolled in schools, then the same people right now that are arguing about, oh man, white people are the ones that are taking over all these schools, in the future, that might not be the case. Then those same people will be complaining about the same issues that they're arguing about right now. 
So my problem with all this stuff is that just because something is right or something is wrong, it, it, you still shouldn't have a discriminatory policy to begin with. That's all. Nick, what's your thoughts on this? No, so um, one more question I wanted to ask you, Pratik. Um, a few episodes ago, I want to say this is almost two years ago at this point, one of the things <laughs> that uh, Tyler said very early on was sort of Thomas Sowell and others have said, and for those who don't know, Thomas Sowell is a very fa- famous black economist. He studied alongside Milton Friedman, was very influential uh, as far as the neoliberal school of thought uh, went uh, in economics. And so he wrote, um, he did a number of studies basically looking at how different immigrant groups, like you were saying, where, you know, there are different ethnicities under single races, and some of those ethnicities, especially immigrating from certain countries, tend to do better than actually a lot of, you know, other groups that have already been in the United States for a while and what have you. Um, and so one of the things that Tyler said very early on is that, you know, that Thomas Sowell was saying that if you have this policy, then students who attend these institutions under the policy will somehow think that their achievements are lesser or that someone is going to say you only got in because of affirmative action and that somehow takes away from their achievements. I don't buy that at all. But Pratik, I wanted to ask you, like, what would your thoughts be on that? Because you mentioned it a few episodes ago, like you as an Indian applicant under this, like, do you think in any way this detracts from your achievements? It does. And I'll I'll give you, I've, I've had this, um, I've had this basically, I've had this attack in the past. So I used to work in politics, right? And in the Mm -hmm. Republican party, you don't really see that many non-white people. Hey, you right. might see a few, but you don't see that many. And I've been said, I've somebody said that to me in the past is like the only reason that you probably got selected is because you're an Indian. Really, like, it happens. Yeah, like, like you're a token. Only difference is is that I'm not gonna go whine and complain about it. I mean, there's no point of doing that. It's not like I'm gonna if I'm be like, no, man, you're wrong. Like I can't. I don't know. And I think that's the problem with this whole thing is like that's always going to exist. If somebody gets enrolled and they're a minority student then other people are automatically going to think that. And if people, even if somebody might be a jerk enough to say it in someone's face, but people are still going to assume or think that. And I just think that's the problem with the system in general. And I think that system is still going to exist. Whether or not you eliminate or keep affirmative action, it's not like that's going to change. Like, it's still going to be like, oh, Pratik Patel, that's not a white person's name. Ah, we need to accept him. He's adding to the diverse inclusivity of our school. It helps us bring in more revenue in the future. Like, Are you ever on the cover? Like, were you ever on those tour groups? I actually was never. And that's uh, actually, <laughs> yo, at AU I was. AU, like, you know, it's the same thing where AU was like, they're all they talk about is diversity. It's like diversity this and diversity that. And we hate all the white people and we want to be more inclusive and we want to create a, you know, utopian society. They always had me, when it, they always contacted me to be in all those tour, you know, like those tour groups to try to like, bring people in because they're all like oh if a minority talks to them then they might be convinced to go to the school and i'm a better speaker than some of these other people that they probably had options as well but i'm sure that it's because of my color and me not being white it puts me at the top of the list man it's like a here's the deal here's the deal for to pratik's credit for, for everyone to know he's never played the race card to like gain an advantage as for as long as i've known you pratik you've never said oh i should get that because xyz not once so just just to put that out there 
Thanks, man. <laughs> All right, now let's move on to student loans. Yeah, let's loans. get to the <laughs> flip side of it, student yeah, loans. Yeah. So I think with student loans, the big challenge is just that, you know, they have this $400 billion giveaway, basically. It's all tax money. And from this $400 billion, they're trying to help students that have, you know, accumulated a large amount of student loan debt to be able to get wiped off so then they don't have that stuff in their system and that allows them to have more credit to be able to do other future things. And the problem with all this stuff, and we've talked about this in the past, is that the schools are predatorizing all these students without any credit history by giving them a bunch of loans and then basically demanding that they pay them back in interest. And that never really goes away. They will just continue to pay back student loans and, and can't interest. And go bankrupt. And yeah. <laughs> but and the thing is that the government is basically making money out of it and the system itself makes schools so expensive because they want to, you know, provide for all these, all these like, you know, higher end teachers and they want to provide all these things. And then the other challenge is that they don't subsidize textbooks or anything. So the students, whether or not they get in, they're still going to have to pay a lot of money for, for their dorm residency. They're going to have to pay money for their like textbooks and they're going to have to pay money for anything else that they do within the school. They are required to get a meal plan. They have to pay for parking. All of those things are always going to exist. So it's going to be a ripoff for students anyway. But the whole system is basically predatorizing the kids that are getting enrolled. So that's the challenge. So Nick and Tyler, thoughts on the student loan relief debt plan? Should it be kicked out? Should it be alive? I'm just thankful it's kicked down the line because it'll finally uh, apply to me in the future. Yeah, he's <laughs> No, I'm joking aside. <laughs> like, I really do think that, you know, it, it's so strange to see online, for example, if you go on Reddit, which skews young and more liberal, people will say, oh, this is going to freeze an entire generation of Americans out from ever owning a home because these interest payments are just going to keep adding up. You're going to take ages and ages to pay off your student loans, etc. And then on the other side, if you look at the Wall Street Journal commenters, they say, good. Take some personal responsibility. You're not allowed to shirk this. If you took on a loan, you need to pay it back. Do whatever, right? Um, and it's like there, there's the two ends of that. But on the other hand, I just think it's kind of talking past each other, right? People in our parents' generation, college didn't cost the same amount that it does today. It costs way more today. The amount of hours that you would have to work at minimum wage or otherwise today is like 10 times the amount that you used to have to be able to work to actually pay for your college education. So, and feel free to, you know, look that up in terms of what the actual numbers are. But I think it's like that stark. I think it's gotten so much more astronomically expensive. And on the one hand, it's had the benefit of, you know, funding a lot more programs so that you actually have more students coming in to get a college education. That's the one plus. On the other hand, you know, at the same time that you have so many students coming in, the costs have really soared to the point where it is a huge burden. And it is proven so burdensome that a lot of people are struggling to make these payments and keep up with everything else in their life. For example, people of our generation are pushing off things that our parents did at much younger ages. For example, home ownership, settling down, like all this stuff gets pushed further and further and further along because just cost of living and everything is higher than when our parents were our same age and were able to attend college for cheaper. So I think it's kind of the intergenerational thing of not understanding where the other is coming from because someone in our parents' generation would say, oh, well, I worked my way through school. I was able to pay for it. But the thing is, the costs are so much higher today. And on the flip side, to be fair, though, devil's advocate, someone would say, well, if the costs are so high, why don't you just join a trade? You know, we should not just say the college degree is the only path to success. We should say we should have more plumbers, electricians, 
positions, all these blue collar jobs that actually pay you very well, you'll make a very solid wage. And you don't even have to spend all these years at college. You don't have to go into debt. You can apprentice. And of course, this ignores the fact that there's a lack of apprenticeships. There's actually all these electrician shortages and a lack of people who actually want to train the next generation because the amount of jobs available... It's a whole mess on both sides, but like that would be the counter argument. It's like not everyone needs a college education to succeed in the United States. We shouldn't be pushing this on every single 18-year-old who has no idea how these interest payments are going to affect them for the next 20 years where they could still be paying off their student debt before they even like <laughs> really own their house. So uh, Tyler, yeah, go ahead. But even still, and we talked about this before, if you don't create a system that's going to create the output we want, doing away with the debt today does nothing for us in 10 right. years. It's a short-term band-aid Are we fits, every yeah. single 10 years going to go, oh, we're creating this huge burden against the young, and because of that, we need to do something? Because we didn't actually solve any of the problems. This doesn't solve any of the problems except helps Biden get reelected because a ton of people are going to get some relief from their debt. They're going to like that. They're going to vote in Biden. But nothing's going to actually fundamentally change about the education system because of that. My solution to this is clearly administrative staff in colleges need some work. But if we're going to if the government's going to subsidize anything, it should be for certain trades. If there are certain trades that are crucial for the security and survival of America as a whole, those like if you want to become an engineer or something, I have no problem with those being subsidized and you get you getting your student loans reduced. But let's not pretend that all degrees are created equal. That's just not the case. If you choose to study a niche degree and you don't have the funds to pay for that degree, I'm sorry, but you still have to pay that back. On the other hand, if you're doing something that's critical to the infrastructure of the country that we all need you to do for the benefit of everyone, then yeah, I have no problem with that being subsidized. So we're at a point where we're, we're talking just in generalities where, oh, I have this massive loan. I have this massive loan. Well, what about the people that went to community college? What about the people that decided not to go to college as a financial decision because they thought that I didn't want to have to pay back these loans over time? Those are the ones that are being screwed from this because their taxpayer dollars are going to be going to these people who have their debt relieved. So I'm not saying it's not a mess of a situation. It totally is. But don't come at with me with all these student loan, you know, just getting rid of all these student loans. And we've not actually solved any of the problems. And we're not even incentivizing people to pursue the educations that would help us as a whole as a country. It's not to say you shouldn't study certain things. It's that if you are going to study more niche topics that aren't going to produce some sort of economic result, then you do have to pay for that. And I think that's fair overall. Yeah, that's fair. I would say that, you know, uh, gosh, I think it's just the amounts, like you said. Like, for example, sometimes people go from community college, transfer to a four-year institution, and like you're saying, like they will save a bunch of money and that would end up making sense. Like I did some of my prereqs <laughs> before going back to grad school at a community college. It was way cheaper. It made a lot more sense than going back to where I went to undergrad. Like the prices were so much less and it was the same level of quality education, mostly because I, I think like when you're studying something like math, like the, the courses can't be that like insanely different. Like if you take a physics class at Harvard, I'm sure it goes like faster and maybe you like get into some topics that you wouldn't have otherwise. But at the, at the same of it, like calculus is calculus. Like you're gonna like end up learning the same course stuff at, at the end of it. But I think it's just the amount of debt, Tyler, where I think on the one hand, I agree with you that this is not solving any of the underlying fixes. Like, for example, if you have this wiped right now, if you have $10,000 wiped off a lot of people, that would help a lot of people right now, right? Um, I, what is it? 30 million, 40 million Americans have something, have student loan debt at the point at this moment. And I think the average is about $30,000 for undergrad. So that's a significant amount of debt to have. 
Um, and having the 10,000 wiped would help right now. But like you're saying, like all the new people who end up coming up into the system and have more loans that are coming on top of this, like you're just going to run to the same issue down the line. Um, and I, I would agree that something would have to be changed about that. But I, I just don't know what the answer is, right? Because the best predictor of your future income, it's like your level of educational attainment. And I get what you're saying about community colleges and the, the fairness factor of it. But if you're just operating as an individual and trying to make the best decision for yourself, like having a degree from a, a an esteemed university, a private university that costs a lot of money, that is something... and. It's not a knock to people that have gone to community college. You could have the exact same smarts, the exact same skill set, and yet employers will pay you more money if you went to a higher ranked institution than, you know, some local state school. So, well, but here's the deal. State schools specifically, they cost way less. And that's a better economical decision for a lot of people that people specifically said, no, I'm not going to pay 10,000 a year. I'm going to pay 50, $60,000 a year because everyone else is doing it because that I need to do it. I don't necessarily believe that, uh, that people going to state schools, for instance, are making way less money. If you study a trade like engineering, you're going to do well out of school no matter where you go. So yeah, but then we get back to the affirmative action thing because then to, you have why states are we subsidizing like Mississippi. the yeah. top of the top universities in the country? To me, if we're going to have private schooling, it makes no sense mm -hmm. to say that oh, the be you went to the best schools, so we're just going to wipe. The, but the like fact most Americans didn't go to schools. those best schools. I I know that I made the argument saying that they should, um, and that it's in their best interest to go to as good of a school as possible, which you know coincidentally will cost more money than the alternatives, right? People do that all the time where they'll pay full sticker price at another university than like, for example, if you were offered like a full ride to, you know, one of the SUNY schools in New York state versus Harvard, like it at, at full price, I don't know. I feel like a lot of people would justify at 18 being like, yeah, I'm going to go to Harvard because that'll do so much more for me than going to this state local, even though it would be way better for you financially. Um, but that's that's definitely a bit of a straw man. But what I wanted to say was the affirmative action thing, tying it back to that one more time. Like if you look at a state like Mississippi, Mississippi, um, black college enrolled students, it's about like 13 and a half percent of the state. The graduating high school students in Mississippi, 50% are black. And so like there's this huge gap in the people who actually will go on to attend like these, the state schools that you were saying that people should be able to attend and afford. And then at that same point, like, I don't know, I feel like these two things like get directly back into one another where it's like, yes, it is the funding, but also like, how do we end up closing these gaps? Because like you were saying, if something like a community college, like a state university system is not, you know, for example, we could argue all day about affirmative action at like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, whatever. But when it comes to just state schools that everyone should be able to attend, like all the Thomas Sowell arguments about someone going to Princeton and failing out, yeah, like, they don't work. All of that goes level. out the window because like attending a state school is what you should like that should be like the goal for a lot of this stuff. And it's not happening right now. And you're seeing those huge disparities. So and frankly, like, I don't know what the solution is. I don't think anyone really does. I'm sure people have a lot of good ideas for it. Um, and I've, I've read some of them. Private institution, <laughs> just close half the private institutions, half the private colleges in America. We should full communist system. Tomorrow. Just everyone goes to the same <laughs> school. It's all online. It's all Arizona but that's State University. If you want everyone to get education, guess what? You water it down. That's just how that's just the yeah. nature of how things work. If you're going to dilute resources to everyone, it's all going to be watered yeah. down. So is or, that what we want in the end? Or you can do what New York City did, where, for example, you have all the you have all the rich boroughs in New York City. And for the New York public school system, what they did when Bloomberg was in office was they basically said, OK, all these school districts are going to have the same amount of total funding. You know how effective you are 
in actually applying that funding to student outcomes, that's up to you, school districts. But like you're going to start with the same pot of money so that all the kids in different parts of New York are at least going to start from like the same opportunity level. And then from there, you can you can see who sort of makes it to the top, but at least starting at the same level of opportunity. I think the way that New York did it is the fair way. But again, it gets into the, the whole thing because, you know, you get into rural America and it's like you have people leaving, you're going to cities, you have less tax base, you don't have as much money for these schools. And it's a vicious cycle. So again, it is. Uh, let's let's definitely move on to the next topic. Yeah. Pratik, take us there, please, dear God. Well, uh, Pratik, if you wouldn't mind, just re- reread um, the last paragraph. We'll do. Article. So lastly, the court's ruling in 303 Creative LLC versus Ellenis prioritized religious freedoms over sexual orientation. The decision favored a website designer who objected to creating designs for same-sex weddings based on her beliefs. This established a precedent that favors religious freedoms over sexual preferences, despite both being protected classes. So that's the story. Yeah, so uh, here's what I'll say about this. If I walk into a McDonald's and I order a hamburger and they go, you can't have that hamburger because of who you are. That's discrimination. But if I walk into a, a McDonald's and say, I need you to make me something that's not on the menu and they say, no, that's not discrimination. And I think that's kind of what the case is here. I don't think individuals should necessarily be coerced into doing certain things, services that they don't actually provide just because someone else believes that it's discriminating against them. And, you know, maybe there's I actually was talking to Jenny about this. Maybe there's levels where if you're a big enough corporation, more of these things have to be taken into account. But if you're a mom and pop shop, if you're an individual contractor and you make websites and they're like, oh, you have to make me a website for this gay thing. You're like, that's not a service I do. I don't think you should have to do that. So I believe the court made the correct decision here. I think the other main thing here is just that whenever it's something specific, right? So like we always bring back that wedding cake example. So like you have that one bakery shop and there was a gay couple that wanted to, you know, they are getting married. So they wanted a wedding cake that, you know, that was made for them. And then that bakery shop said no, because it violates, it goes against their religious principles. And then that was like, you know, a heated topic at the time. This is similar to that. I think it's one of those where it's not really about what's the right or what's the wrong answer is based on perspective. If you are a really religious person, let's say you are someone that is a really Christian person. You go to church every Sunday. Like this is like you believe that having, you know, having, you know, people, gay people getting married, it goes against your God. It goes against your religion and it violates all the religious principles that you hold dear. And now like with the court system, obviously gay people are now a protected class. So with gay people being a protected class and you yourself being uh, like your religious principles. So what you believe is the word of God being against that those, you know, same people, because they believe that that's not right, then you're going to always have this kind of qualm that will always come up. There's no right answer to this. If the Supreme Court was to rule the other way, then you would have had all these people that are religious be like, why is the Supreme Court going against my religious values and my beliefs? Because they're they're putting this other protected class over me, and religion is also a protected class. So either way you go about it, people are going to be pissed off. And like, I, in my opinion, I do believe this. I think if somebody is gay, that's like a certain trait of somebody. You could have short people, you could have brown people, you, and then you're going to have people that are gay. It's not something you can change, right? It's not like, you know, these people have like the ability to be like, yeah, man, I, I don't I don't feel like being gay today. I, I want to be gay tomorrow. Like that doesn't happen. It's a trait of somebody. It's not like I, if I was up to me, I'd be really tall, man. I don't know. People like I'm like five, five, six. I'd be like, yo, I want to be six foot today. This is what I feel. 
but it's not up to me, right? So I just think it's the same concept where there's not really a right answer to this question, but it's like you're basically put, you're asking like, what, what does the court prefer more? It's a conservative court. If this was a liberal court, they would be doing the opposite side. They would be like, you know, we protect, you want to protect the, you know, sexual orientation and the freedoms of these people for them to be able to, um, you know, be treated like everybody else. And that's a fair argument. But at the same time, like from the religious aspect, by you making that decision, you're discriminating against the religious people because the religious people haven't done anything wrong either. They just believe that their God tells them that this is a wrong, this is a sin to them and they don't want to make some product for them. Now, it's just a matter of perspective. I don't really think that there's one side that is more right than the other, but it's all based on where you stand. The conservative court is going to stand more with the religious side and the liberal side is going to stand more with the, you know, the people that are of different sexual orientations. I was trying to make this a very politically correct statement, so bear with me here. <laughs> it's not all perspective, it's also options. So like, let's say every single uh, web designer in the country is like, I'm not gonna make a website for gay people. Like that's something that as a country we should look at and go, okay, that is actual discrimination. No one's going to be providing the service yeah. that should be provided otherwise. But if you can walk to the next store and they have no problem making it, uh, wouldn't you want to give your money there anyway? I mean, we could at some point speak with our dollar that hopefully that's that's what the capitalist system does. We pick and choose who we want to succeed by where we're spending yeah. our money. For instance, if you look at the wedding cake scenario, that couple had been going to a bunch of different cake places to find one that would actually say no to them so that they could make it a court case. And I'm not saying that, you know, delegitimizes the entire argument. I'm just saying it's easy to go find people that won't provide you a certain service and go after them for that. But at the same time, if you have plenty of other options, I don't think it's too big of a deal, if that makes sense. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I think because you have other options in this instance, like, frankly, like, this woman is not Walmart. Like, she is not a major public company exactly. that everyone shops at every single day and relies on. This is a very niche website services company where she wanted to expand it. And the strange thing is that, like, for example, you talked about the wedding cake for the gay couple. This isn't even that. She she hasn't even offered these services. So the case is Lori exactly. Smith. She wanted to, you know, include wedding websites, but only for heterosexual couples. And she wanted to post a, web, a message on her website saying that. And so it's like, yeah, if someone if someone's going to like post something dumb on their website, like, you know what, they can do that under the First Amendment. I don't think this is such a big deal. But conversely, if someone showed up and said, hey, I would like you to make me a website, you know, to celebrate my wedding because you make websites for people to celebrate their weddings and it's a protected class, then I don't think that would be OK. Right. So I think it's very different to allow someone to say whatever take they want online versus someone actually showing up and contacting them and saying, would you provide me the service? And them saying no, be explicitly because of something that you can't even change about yourself. Right. It's a protected class. Yeah. And so and I know that's not all of protected classes. Like, for example, well, there's in any case, not to get into there, there's a yeah. lot of them. But um, I, I did want to say for this specifically at the same time, though, I don't know. It's like as a business as a small business owner that's just doing websites, you could have all sorts of reasons for turning people down, right? But in this case, I think someone would have a case to follow up on because she explicitly yeah. says, I will <laughs> not make anything for gay people. Like the fact that she's using her First Amendment right to again, like very clearly state that 
I don't know. I feel like it could turn into the cake thing because in this instance, even though she didn't render any services, she just wanted to specify, I will not do this. When it actually comes to someone saying, will you do this? And her saying no, I think that would be a different story. But let's flip the argument. What if they said, I only do transgender weddings and a straight person was like, you have to make me a, a, yeah, a I, w- I wouldn't think that's okay. So you, you wouldn't be okay with that? No, I wouldn't be okay with that. Okay. See, my 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 thought process, I'm a little bit different than Nick. I just think that my, I always believe, I always resort that capitalism is the best answer in all these issues, right? Think about Chick-fil-A. We all think about, oh, Chick-fil-A. Yeah, Chick-fil-A doesn't allow anybody. If you're a franchisee, if you're gay, they won't allow you to be a franchisee of Chick-fil-A. They won't really? allow it. Like they're are you, not. Wait, they are, they don't even thing? allow. No, yeah, I don't. I don't think that's a private thing. Company. That would be I'll give you. I'll give you something else with Chick Fil A. They don't allow somebody that's a Hindu to be a um, you know, own a Chick Fil A franchise. I what? can't own a Chick Fil A franchise. Seriously? Are you sure about that? Wait, Seriously. I don't you're think you're saying because I've of your religion. It. This is against Chick Fil A. Will not give you a franchise. But it's not against the religion. It's not. I mean, it's not against the law. Why can't you sell fried chicken, Pratik? Because what is stopping you from doing it? Because you're Indian. I got Are you, you serious? I got you. Like, let me let me talk. Let me talk. It's because it's a private company. If this was a public company, then oh, that would okay. fall into the public protected costs. But this is a private company. When it's a private company, it's not the same thing. Now it's You're the same right, it Chick Fil A argument. It's different. It's like they don't allow gay franchisees. They don't allow Hindu franchisees. But even then. The other argument with Chick-fil-A is, is that you as a consumer, there's so many people that I know that are being like, oh yeah, I never want to eat at Chick-fil-A because they did this, this, and this. And then I have other people that I know that are going to eat at Chick-fil-A because they did this, this, and this. The funny thing about Chick-fil-A, I know people who are members of the LGBT community who like Chick-fil-A because they just have good chicken sandwiches. Exactly. Like, obviously, they would prefer too. that they're not a fan yeah. of that, but they're but like, see, they're like begrudgingly will go get a milkshake. Like, uh, you know, I, I don't like these people, but... Damn it, it's good. <laughs> my point is that everybody has a preference. But, they will but the difference that. there, but the difference there is like, because they're rendering the service... I, I totally take your point about ownership uh, for the franchises. I would also yeah. say that that's... I would also say that that's wrong, frankly. Um, yeah. But well, we can have time, that like, opinion, but that's the yeah, state, that's the law. So, I, I get like, what you're that's saying. Point. But at the same time, like, yeah, it is. I guess that is a perfect comparison, right? Because in this case, the woman doesn't want to make websites for gay people, and yet if a gay person showed up, I would say that she should have to pay. Like, she should have to make that website. Like, if there were other reasons, like you can always turn down a customer for other reasons. But if that was the only reason, I would think that's wrong. But at the same time, for Chick Fil A, for example, they can fund a bunch of anti-gay stuff all over the place. But if yeah. a gay person shows up to Chick Fil A and wants a chicken sandwich, in no world would they ever say no. You're not allowed to have one, and I think that's yeah. fine. Uh, and I the, think that's that's what that. it is. Yeah. Is like I think it's just the perspective behind it. But mm-hmm. at the same time, like there are rules and regulations behind this process too, where private companies can't just turn down customers. But right. with private companies, they have much more leeway to turn down customers than a public company does. If some tomorrow somebody was to come to my hotel that doesn't have enough money to pay for the room, I can be mm-hmm. like, you don't have enough money to pay for the room, so right. I don't have to rent you a room. Mm-hmm. That's all it takes. But right. see, now if that person was like African American and he was below the you know income levels and all this other stuff, all of that stuff would make them a protected class. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, they don't have enough money to pay for their service, so I don't have to rent them a roof. That's yeah, and like Tyler takes. was saying earlier, if you have a, enough businesses who are willing to then make the website for the gay couple, and you know this person is just a solo show, then you know those businesses are going to yeah. make more money and they're going to do better, and I think they should. 
All right, yeah. so let's move on and to the next yeah, story now. Let's move it on to our favorite person in the race at the moment because he's causing kind of an uproar as of late, RFK. So RFK lays it on Biden. In a Twitter statement, Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. criticized President Biden for the Supreme Court's rejection of his student loan forgiveness plan. Kennedy blamed Biden's inability to unite Congress on the issue and called a plan a mere show of action. Kennedy pledged to mobilize public support and pressure Congress for debt relief without specifying how he would convince Republicans. He also emphasized reducing college costs and military spending. While Biden's platform supported free education and debt relief negotiations in Congress proved challenging. Kennedy currently polls himself around 17% when polled between the three declared nominees, Biden, uh, Crazy Crystal Lady Williamson, and himself. In a recent interview, RFK said he will not support Biden if he wins the primary. So, got some more statements from RFK. Like I said, he's been in the news lately. He's been rising in the polls. What are you guys' thoughts? I think it's crazy that our, this, this craziest thing to me is that Democrats can't find anybody else that's qualified enough to be a candidate against Biden. These are the two people, in my opinion. Now I'll just say my straight up opinion here. I don't think that RFK is really a credible person. Forget about candidate. And he's the second best option that the Democrats got. Now, Democrats can complain about how much they don't like Biden, and that's the reason why Biden only has 60%, which is kind of sad for a president that's a sitting president and incumbent. But even then, within his own primaries, at least. So even then, like, I just think that it's kind of speed, it's like kind of shout something that like, man, Democrats really don't want Biden either. So if Democrats don't really want Biden either, and they want a different option, they need to figure out what that other option is. Because I really think that it's kind of funny that an anti-vaxxer that has a bunch of theories about random stuff, like it sounds like a chain smoker, sounds literally worse than Biden, should be the second best in line. And it's funny to me because this is the Democratic side. If this was the Republican side, and let's say that against Donald Trump, all they could find is somebody like RFK that sounds like terrible, then then they, Democrats would be like, man, Republicans really had need some work, man. They can't find anybody that can beat Trump. All they can come up with is this chain smoker dude that like sounds terrible. That's like, you know, he sounds like a or like a frog, basically. Like that's your option, right? So I just think it's funny that this is the Democratic side. Democrats like to talk about diversity and all this other BS stuff. But then whenever it deals with them actually bringing out candidates, all they can come up with is two old white people that sound terrible that are old as crap. So, like, you know, they, they can talk about all this stuff, but at least Republicans got diversity people. We got a few African-Americans. We got a Hispanic person. And we have a few women. What do well, Democrats they think, have? They think Biden's going to win. And they think because <laughs> Biden's going to win, why should I even run? And the Democrats are really good at uniting, like, as compared to the Republicans. We talk about how there are candidates for the Republicans, but true. at least the Democrats can coalesce around someone, which helps them true. in the end in these elections. Pratik, do you think that's a fair and honest comparison, by the way? Because if you look at 2020, the Democrats ran a pretty diverse field in the primary system. The that same thing true. with the Republicans, granted. Like, the Republicans actually that do have fair. a decent amount of diversity on the stage right now, right? But at the that, same time, right yeah. now, the reason why they're not doing any of that is because the Democratic Party itself is not finding people to run against Joe Biden. There is nothing, it, it, there's no There's a, no wind at the sails to actually have a candidate come challenge him. You know, people keep asking, like, Gavin Newsom, Warren. You know, even Kamala Harris, I'm sure someone has been like, all right, even Kamala, Michelle Obama, we're going to do it. Yeah, Michelle there. Obama, dude, people would 100 percent elect Michelle Obama. OK, like <laughs> I, I, I genuinely that. think I that if she ran against Biden, 100%. I genuinely think she would win. OK, um, You're right. and that's no. And that's the thing. But they're not looking for anyone because as we've talked about so much, like they are so scared of if Trump is the nominee, who's going to beat him? 
Joe Biden has beaten him before, right? Yeah. Is that going to be the same thing this time? Maybe. Um, but he's shown that he can do it. And I think as long as, for example, if Trump wasn't in the race, and we've talked about this a ton, if Trump wasn't in the race, I think the Democrats would say, hey, Joe, let someone else come in. You did your thing for four years. Nice job. Pat on the back. Go retire and like live a nice little life for the See, rest of your days, right? I'm, I'm go live on some farm that, somewhere, right? Yeah. It'd be like Jimmy Carter. Or buy a peanut farm. Just go hang out there, right? Just just grow some peanuts all day, Joe Biden. You know, Hunter Biden, <laughs> he's still going to be smoking crack, banging prostitutes. He's going to be, you know, doing whatever he does. But Joe Biden, he can just hang out and have a nice day on the prairie. All right. For, for them to actually run someone new, Biden would 100% have to drop out. And the thing is, if you look at, for example, Buttigieg, like all, all these people who dropped out in 2020 going against him, there were people who were like Joe Biden, who were more kind of, you know, Bernie is Bernie. Bernie's always going to be Bernie. You can't take that away from him. So he was going to be in the race no matter what. Uh, but like Warren, all those other people dropping out. Um, down the line, that was just to coalesce support around Biden. And after you've done that and put all these people in cabinet positions, you can't then say, oh, I'm in Joe Biden's candidate cabinet and I'm running against him. <laughs> like I was appointed by the president and I think he's doing a bad job because I'm in and therefore I should be president. Like that's not a winning. Well, message. You, you can do that. So. I, I actually think the most telling thing of all this was that Joe Biden and his family actually had to discuss whether or not he was going to be running for president. No, that's right. I'm the, sure I'm sure the they fact don't want that it was to a little bit honestly. hesitant tells yeah. me a lot about what the situation because I think most I don't think Biden himself even it's like most important for him to run. I think everyone else is telling Biden for the sake of this country, you need to run. Right. Because you're I the think, only piece see, in the person that beats Trump. But the thing Trump. is, like, the problem is that all these people, all they talk about, right? Like, all these Democratic people, all the liberals that I've ever met, they're all, all against Biden. They're like, we need somebody new. Biden's too old. Wait, Biden's not really not diverse. Biden's all not, the liberals you've ever met are against most, Biden? Every liberal that I've met is actually is not a fan of Biden. Maybe I Nick. Like Nick is kind of like <laughs> yeah, I, Nick's I even know moderate Republicans are like Biden. Moderate Republicans like Biden because he's not a progressive Democrat. That's the thing. So that's his push that I you're pushing know, him, right? But I just think that is funny to me that like these people act about, you know, talk about how progressive they are and they like to act like big game about how they want to be more diverse and how they want to include everybody and they want to, you know, create a more diverse utopian society. But then the thing is that last time around, they had 26 candidates. And Nick's right, it was diverse. But who'd you end up with? An old guy versus an even older guy. The oldest, whitest guy. Oldest, white guy. No, you're right. Literally the oldest, whitest guy. Yeah. You know what's hilarious about that, too? It wasn't just that there were two old white guys running against each other the last time in the Democratic primary. It's that when... Uh, what is his name? Bloomberg. When Bloomberg came in and he's like, all right, no one's making the cut. These candidates aren't doing well. It's like, who should we add into the race to spice things up? Another, Another old white guy. It's like, that's what the Democrats need. It's like, no. Yeah. yeah. So, no. Yeah. Point Trump taken. does so well. Point he's taken. orange. All right. Let's oh move God. on to the next story. Bidenomics. Nick, tell us about Biden and his economic plan. All right, so President Joe Biden's visit to Chicago aimed to promote his economic vision, labeled Bidenomics as a key focus for his potential 2024 re-election campaign. Throughout his presidency, challenges like rising interest rates, inflation, and labor issues have persisted. Although they're going down a little bit now, and although there have been some improvements, including increased consumer confidence and low unemployment, economists still warn of a potential recession due to ongoing concerns over high interest rates and persistent levels of inflation. A recent poll reveals that only 34% of Americans approve of Biden's economic leadership, which is lower than his overall approval rating, which is dismal at 41%. 
Biden defended his administration's efforts, criticizing previous Republican tax cuts. The poll also exposes a weakness in his own party, where some Democrats say that they have limited support for his economic record. And to try to sway the public's opinion on this, Biden's aides are focused on consistent messaging and really trying to emphasize his accomplishments. One of the big things they say is investing in infrastructure, that he's pro-union, which he keeps trying to sell, um, plus sort of building out all this battery and clean energy manufacturing in the country, which frankly I think is going to be very good for the United States. A lot of those benefits are actually going to go to Republican counties, funnily enough. But uh, Pratik and Tyler, what are your thoughts on Bidenomics, which I don't think Trump ever had that. You know, maybe you heard it one day like Trump anomics. It just doesn't sound right. You know, Reaganomics, everyone knows. But what do you think of Bidenomics, both as a term and his performance? I think, see, I always bring this up, right? Because I'm a Republican. Republicans are going to hate everything about any Democrat that they bring out there, right? Economically wise, many of us, people like me, we're voting against the Democratic Party because, you know, we're pro-economy. We are pro-business. We don't want, you know, all this labor union stuff. We don't want people, we don't want the government raising your minimum wage. We don't want the government to, like, raise our taxes. We don't want that stuff. That's why we vote Republican. Now, if I was to complain about Biden, I could say, yeah, his his economy is trash. Like, it's bad. Like, the inflation rate is crazy. Like, interest rates keep going up because this is the Biden era of the economy. Everybody's getting paid more money, so that's leading to higher levels of cost of living so no one's really making as much money as they did before and the quality of the amount of money that they're making has gone down it's like you know even if they're making more the quality of the work they're doing has gone down and at the same time they're pay- they're getting paid a lot more than they were before which isn't amounting to much because the cost of doing everything has gone up because of the you know Biden economic plan i can complain about all that stuff and that's fair but at the same time compare bidenomics to any other democrat imagine bernieomics like Bernie Sanders or AOC <laughs> or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris even. These people would be so much worse for the economy. And this is my argument as a Republican. Even if I don't like Biden because Biden's a Democrat and I don't want a Democrat in office, I would much rather have Biden than have any of those other whack jobs trying to lead our economy because it would be 10 times worse. If this is as bad as it is, if this is the worst it can be with Biden, imagine how much worse it would be with all these other people. Because I think Biden is at least at a minimum, is like like more moderate than a lot of these other guys. You compare him to any of the other Democrats is so much worse. And I think in my opinion, this is actually something that helps Biden more than anything else. Because if somebody like me that is always going to vote Republican is able to tell you that I would much rather prefer Biden over any of these other whack jobs, at least that tells you that, all right, well, that's probably why Biden is beating Donald Trump. And I think that's something that Donald Trump needs to focus on trying to improve his own messaging so he can come out, come off across as like being a little bit more regular to a lot of these other people that don't like him and not being as hostile. Because I think if this, this is Biden's biggest problem. It's his economic situation. And my argument would be is that if you put any other Democrat there, maybe apart from RFK, because we don't know what RFK believes. He's like a conspiracy theorist, anti-vax guy. But if you put any other Democrat there, it would be 10 times worse. So that's my thought process on Bidenomics. Tyler, you got any different thoughts on this? You know, I, I think Biden going into office faced a lot of headwinds coming from COVID, 
coming from lockdowns. Now we have geopolitical conflicts around the world. A lot of what's gone on in terms of the economic situation can't be directly pinned on Biden, but in a presidential election, you will be blamed for everything that does happen. So because of that, he needs to come out strong for the economy. He it, uh, One to one, him against Trump or really any Republican, he loses the economic debate outright. I don't think people can question that. If, that's, if people are pure, purely rational in the capitalist capitalistic system and only looking for that, I mean, it's 100% you don't vote for Biden. But at the same time, I think t Trump in particular is such a toxic brand that it's almost irrelevant what he believes about the economy, how he would improve the economy, because people that vote against Trump aren't doing it for economic reasons necessarily, at least in my opinion. They're doing it because he is toxic, because he's divisive, and they want a more moderate uh, person at you know, running the country. Pratik, you're talking about how even some maybe moderate Republicans can side with Biden um, because he doesn't go too far to the left. And because of that, he appeals to such a wide base of people that he is a great candidate for the Democrats. This is the saddest part of it all. He is their best candidate. He's old, and if he can literally stand to be in the next election, he's very likely to win, regardless of the economic situation. Bidenomics, I mean, his package in particular, I don't think it's anything special, but he does need some sort of messaging to tell people, this is something we're going to be tackling. This is something I'm going to be focusing on and going to improve in the future. And whether that's true or not is, you know, up, to, up for you to decide, but at the same time, I don't think this is going to play as much of a role as maybe it has even in previous elections because of Trump's, specifically Trump's toxic brand. But going against someone like DeSantis, I think he gets wiped out on the economic front. Yeah, I would agree with a lot of what you guys said. Uh, I don't think that this is going to be some major win that he can claim, especially when the, the messaging on the other side has been so consistently against him. And I think when gas prices go up, for example, when they're going to again, you yeah, know, Republicans are just going to hit them on that over and over and over again and say, this is Biden's fault. Even though we could all sit here and say, you know, oil is a global commodity. It is shipped across countries, across oceans. Like the United States alone does not control the price of oil. Like Biden doing something is not going to significantly alter it. But at the same time, you know, he is the leader. And when you are the leader of the country, like you have to take all the good and the bad as well. So he's going to catch a lot of flack for anything that went wrong, even if it isn't explicitly his fault. So agree with what a lot of you guys said. Let's move on to uh, Pence, though, who doesn't want the Federal Reserve to even exist in the first place, I don't think. Pratik, what's going on there? So Mike Pence wants to end the Federal Reserve's employment mandate while Jerome Powell acknowledges the limits of interest rates in addressing labor shortages. The dual mandate established in 1977 aimed to allow monetary policy to promote full employment and stabilize prices. Um, Pence emphasizes protecting the currency and achieving full employment. Former Fed Governor Lawrence Mayer explains that price stability is crucial during high inflation and low employment, while both mandates are important during normal times. So basically, Mike Pence wants to go back to what the world was prior to Jimmy Carter, where we used to have fiscal policy basically run the show. And since um, Jimmy Carter came into be where the economy was really bad, the interest rates were really high, the inflation situation was really bad, then we started to have the Federal Reserve have more power over monetary policy. So that's what we call the dual mandate. So Pence wants to basically get rid of the dual mandate and just allow fiscal policy measures to dictate, you know, how the economy runs because he just believes that the Federal Reserve is doing a really crappy job and they don't know what they're doing. 
So, Nick and Tyler, what's your thoughts on Pence? And this is stupid, dude. Republicans have come up with this shit every <laughs> single year since, like, the dawn of man. And they're like, oh, we should get rid of the Federal Reserve. The country would be so much better. You know what? We should go on a gold standard. We should do all that. And, you know, to be fair, there's a lot of arguments in favor of having, like, the gold standard back to actually peg our currency to something that's actually that you can actually, like, touch and feel and has in- inherent value in some way. But at the same time, like, all the Federal Reserve stuff, like... That would just fly in the face of like all the like human history's monetary policy and like how that has developed for so long. We talked about uh, Sowell and other people, Friedman, whatever. Like, you need to have some sort of central bank in these economies today to actually do pretty well, to even have a hope of doing pretty well. So, I think it's just like one of those fun things where you say, Oh, abolish the Fed because people are mad about interest rates going up, right? That's a popular thing to say. But, you know, if, for example, if, you know, if gas prices went up and there was one agency that was like overseeing gas prices, you'd say, get rid of that. And then it's like, it doesn't matter if it would make any sense or not. It just sounds good. And, you know, it'll make you feel good for a second. But like Mike Pence, like this is the thing. I feel like he has to say out there stuff or really like dig down and say, oh, I'm so conservative. I'm so like consistent. And like really, you know, I care a lot about the ideology because there's no way he's going to win. He knows that. And I really think that for Mike Pence, it's like cementing a legacy where at least he's respected as someone who like had some vision, had some ideas and stood out in some small way. Because when it comes to the history books on Mike Pence, like what are they going to write? The guy was a wuss. Like, what are they going to say? So, like, on some level, I feel bad for him. But at the same time, we've said this so many times on the show. He has to say stuff like this to even, like, to even be in the public eye. Because any other thing he says, Trump supporters are going to say, Mike Pence betrayed us. That's why Trump lost. That's why he's not in. It's because of Mike Pence. He is all to blame. And the man never stands up for himself. I wish he would grow a backbone and say something. But he's never going to. And, you know, on the one hand, you could say, oh, it's just his religious background. He's very chill. He, he's not aggressive. You know, he's a principled man. He's polite. But that's a bunch of BS, okay? If someone comes out and says, you should be, you should be killed, your family should die, and you don't say, you're like, oh, I think they're misunderstood. Like, don't, give me a break. Like, I, I don't know. I just think Mike Pence needs to actually do something with his life. And what he's doing right now, like, I get it. I get that he's saying this stuff. But, like, really, who cares? No one's voting for him anyway. Loved it, Nick. That was awesome. Dolly, yeah, you got so, any thoughts on so, this? So Nick's a big fan of Pence. Um, no. Uh, look, <laughs> I, there's nothing don't. I can say I actually after nothing that. against him personally, by the way. Look, and we <laughs> talked <laughs> about this. Wait, it, it, look, it is a way, that, like you said it better than I could, or probably you critiques it the same thing. It's like, you said everything I would want to say there, um, but I will still say abolish the Fed. Um, with that, though, we have some more interesting <laughs> stories to cover. Let's just move on. We got DeSantis banning permanent alimony, Nick. Yeah, so if, like me, you know very little about divorce law, um, permanent alimony is a thing, and basically you would pay someone who you divorced uh, in perpetuity, basically, until the day you guys die. So uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed a bill ending permanent alimony, a decision that has sparked mixed reactions. Advocates for older women who receive permanent alimony, which, by the way, that's a group that I love, older women, uh, expressed disappointment, believing it would lead to financial devastation. (laughs) The bill also allows for modifications to alimony agreements when ex-spouses want to retire. Critics remain concerned about the impact on existing permanent alimony agreements, of course. And Pratik and Tyler, what are your thoughts on this? 
I think, you know, when we usually think about this stuff, it always seems like, you would think that this is like something that everybody would be like, whoa, man, how can you ban permanent alimony? But then it all, it all depends on certain situations. There's certain divorces, there's certain marriages that happen where there is one person that is like not the best person in that marriage that is using the person, the other person in that marriage. And that stuff happens. It's not like it's like any, it's not, doesn't necessarily mean it's one gender or the other. It happens. Both, there's going to be either gender. There's going to be one gender that, you know, is like, you know, problem child in that marriage, right? So I just think sometimes these kind of policies are okay because it allows like, you know, if there is certain problems that have happened, like there, I mean, the women are always going to be making the money. The men are basically always going to be paying out. But in that situation where the woman is the reason why, like, you know, that the wedding broke up or she was the problem child in that marriage, then this basically allows it to not be permanent. At the same time, it doesn't always necessarily is not that way. Most of the time, it is generally from polling numbers. It's usually the men that are the reason why the marriage breaks up. But there are situations where it is the flip side. So I think sometimes it's better to ban some, certain things from being permanent if there is certain issues with how that marriage took place. And that way, like if somebody is a gold digger type person that have only, has only gotten married for money reasons, well, that doesn't happen. So I just think it's good and a bad. It's issue. As Trump would say about ta not paying taxes, that just means he's smart. And in that case, Pratik, if someone's a gold digger and they marry someone who's rich and they get a lot of alimony, you know what? I respect that. That just means they're smart. <laughs> Tyler, you what are your thoughts? Because, because the institution of marriage has been like crumbling over the past, I don't know, 50 or so years, this kind of makes sense. I mean, the divorce rate's super high. I don't think people are as interested in marriage anymore. And if they are, some people might see it as more of a temporary thing. So this is probably a move in the direction of what people would want to see. But it's kind of sad that we've gotten to this place where... We even have to have these sorts of conversations. But with that said, like, no, if if we've been divorced for 20 years and you're a still able-bodied person and you could find a job, like, you should go and do that. I don't care if your lifestyle was once one thing and you have to go down. Big whoop. That's how the world works. Sometimes you get the shit out of the stick. But so I, I'm actually in favor of what's going on here. But like I said, it kind of makes me sad that, you know, marriage as a whole just isn't what it used to be. I guess I don't think that's going to be good for our culture altogether. But this seems to be uh, mirroring, let's say, uh, cultural trends in that regard. I would totally agree and would add that this is separate from child support. So some people may think, yeah. um, as I did this morning, it's like, what's the difference between alimony and child support? And child support is a separate payment. So alimony is strictly just from one spouse to your ex-spouse. And like Tyler was saying, it's to maintain a certain level of lifestyle. You know, if you married someone who's making a lot more money than you in some cases, it's like maybe you've been out of the workforce for so long that if you were to try to go back and get a decent job, like it's just been so many years that you can't really do that. And so it makes sense that you would have some form of alimony payment to basically say, look, like let's say you stayed out of the workforce to raise the kids and now you're getting paid this money, even though, you know, your children are all grown up. It's like you were out of the workforce for like 18 years or something like, okay, here's here's some money so that you can get by and actually do okay. Because otherwise, like, you can't just walk out and get a job if you haven't, like, actually worked competitively for the last, you know, so many years. So Yeah, but let's I, like, say after 20 years, like, if right, you have 20 but, years but, of payments No, but that's my in. thing. But that's that would be my yeah, argument. Yeah, it's like exactly. after a certain, like, if you're married to someone for, like, 15 years, you have a kid together, whatever, then, like, 30 years later, you're still paying alimony. Like, no, I don't think that's, <laughs> I don't think yeah. that's okay. And if someone is the point where you know, they're drawing down on disability or something like do that. Don't rely on alimony for that. Like there are other programs that would actually pay for this stuff. And we as a and, society incentivize that. So, and, you know, critique. 
And now one thing I just want to make sure that everybody's clear on this listening. We're not against alimony. So we're not right, anti-alimony. No. Yeah, we're no anti-permanent alimony. It's a different thing. So permanent alimony is just the fact that whenever you got married, let's say you got married when you were 21 years old, you had a bad marriage and you guys broke up. Well, the man would be paying that woman alimony payments until they both literally die. But it's not so, always. Like, hold on. I don't permanent. think it's always man woman. I mean, maybe for the majority. No, no, I know. It could it's be whatever's the higher like, traditionally. Yeah. But but also, yeah. I guess this generally speaking, less it is important. More men, though. This becomes less important the more we have dual income households as well, which has been an increasing trend where it's like it's even harder yeah. to get by on a single family income anymore. So That's we're true. really only talking about like the upper echelon of people that it's can actually afford problem, to man. have the single. Yeah, you know and this isn't I mean? like a common thing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, permanent is not. It's usually it usually has some term limits, and it does depend on like who who initiated it the term of the marriage like for example if you married yeah. someone for like a year or two you're not getting indefinite alimony payments like that's not how this works yeah but, so. but let's be real these are old rich white women that are outraged so they might I, get what they want you know you're right <laughs> they, they do usually get what they want but exactly uh, let's turn over to france tyler yeah, who, what's going who's on who's not getting what they want well in france uh, not a lot of a lot of people aren't getting what they want so we got fires erupt in france france finds itself in a state of mourning as riots continue for the fifth consecutive night following the police shooting of 17 year old Nahel Merzak, a young man of Algerian and Moroccan descent at a traffic light in Nanteri. The unrest has spread to Marseille, Marseille, Lyon, Marseille. and Paris. Marseille, my God. No, no. <laughs> Marseille, a true Italian. The unrest has spread yeah. in Marseille, Lyon, and Paris, where vandalism <laughs> and looting and arson have left the streets, homes, stores, and vehicles in ruins. Over 2,400 <laughs> arrests have made in response to the escalating clashes. President Emmanuel Macron made the decision to cancel his trip to Germany in order to address the crisis, deploying 45,000 police officers nationwide. The riots have brought attention to deep-seated issues of poverty and discrimination faced by marginalized communities within the French Islamic community, calling for justice and reform. In response, Macron has implemented stricter law enforcement measures and cautioned against the promotion of violence on social media platforms, because that always goes so well. Guys, don't talk about violence on social media platforms but look overall these were some devastating riots in france i know some of the 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 actual police officers were calling these these rioters vermin that they were almost unhuman with the acts they were committing in the streets of france france is no uh they've never shied away from protests but this does seem to be an escalation from what we have seen over the past few years so all in all what are your guys thoughts on the fires erupting in france I, I don't know if you guys remember. So you remember way back in the day, whenever the Black Lives Matter protests were going on, and I was like, man, this is bad because they're breaking into stores, they're burning things down, they're burning cars, they're, you know, putting, like, basically taking to the streets and people are unsafe because, you know, there's a bunch of protesters and rioters just trying to get whatever they can. This is 10 times worse than that. So, like, these people are literally, like, there's been, like, over 2,400 arrests where these people are literally looting stores just for the fun of looting stores. They're burning cars to the ground. They're burning buildings. They're, like, you know, it's basically dangerous to even be outside. That's how bad it is. And the problem with France, though, is also, it's not like America. These like, there's three big cities, and the cities are big, but they're not that big. So, like, if this is, like, all of the streets everywhere, this is actually really bad for that country and then if you think about it apart from everything else it also lowers the morale of all the citizens in that country because they feel unsafe to even go outside because people are literally just like 
burning the streets to the ground like you know it's a scary time and i think my my heart goes out to the people in france especially the people that have been like you know you have have basically had their whole lives like impacted because of these riots like if you had a store and it was burned to the ground or if you had a business and it was burned to the ground because you know these people are just out there rioting it's scary out there and i think sure at the same time it's good that they're standing up for nahal marzouk but at the same time, like, there's a level to how much violence that people should do. Sometimes, you know, there's the argument behind why the violence erupts is good. But then you just have all the other moochers. So you have, like, the original people that are pissed off about it that are actually genuinely pissed off about the situation. And then you got the hundreds of other people that are just like, oh, man, these people are burning the streets. Let's join the crowd with them so then we can take some free TVs out of that department store. Like, that's the issue here is that, you know, there's... There's actual violence, it's bad, it's caused because if there's this actual situation, we need to address that situation, all that stuff is good. But then, you know, it's the basic, the aftermaths of all that stuff, where it's all these other people that have nothing really to do with the situation, that are just angry and they just want to take to the streets so they can get anything out of whatever they can. And they can show, express their anger and disbelief. You know. Nick, you have any more on this? Yeah, so one thing that stands out to me is... Um, I feel like for a lot of years, people have said, oh, we need to reform police systems to look more like some European countries, right? Where they don't shoot first, they, you know, de-escalate situations. And like England, France, other countries are like held up as, oh, this is how you do policing right. Like this is how you're supposed to approach things. The whole like, you know, de-escalate things, don't draw a gun, do things the other way. In this specific instance, again, it just goes to my long-standing thing that France sucks and that in this case, you know, the guy who, like, again, no one should be shot for a traffic stop. Like, that, that on its face is ridiculous. So the fact that the officer shot him through the windshield for just, like, a routine traffic stop, like, that should not have happened. I think everyone agrees. So, yeah, everyone agrees with that. And so, but I, I don't know. For me, the big thing I'm taking away, frankly, like, I, I know it's very different, but it's like... You keep hearing about how there are these systems that are so much better, and I'm sure that it happens a lot less than, for example, in the United States. But at the same time, like this stuff still happens like all over well, the place. And yeah. what do you mean a lot less? They protest all the time in France. No, and not protest. Not, not protest. Muslim... I was talking about um, like shootings. He's um, talking about shootings. Instances sure. of police officers shooting people during traffic sure, stops. It sure, seems sure. like it seems to be the case that that happens more often in the United States than other countries because we have the gun culture. We have more of a driving yeah. culture, so it would make sense that more people get shot at traffic stops. But I was just trying to say that it's so for me, it was just surprising to see something like this story where like this is the poster child of a story of things that supposedly don't happen in other countries. And yet it did. Yep. I think we can all agree it's not a good thing. But at the same time, I mean, so the Islamic relations, that community in France has always been very contentious. They banned Mm -hmm. the burqa a few years ago. We all know this. So maybe this is outrage more than just a single incident like the BLM protest where it was sort of like a bottled up thing. And it wasn't ex- exactly only this situation that led to these protests. I think there's just a lot of frustration within that community. And they've just been clashing with the, 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 the French community as well for a long time now. So it just yeah. seems to be an escalation in that regard. And that's not good to see. Um, as much as I also am not a big fan of the French at the same time, I don't want to see this stuff happening. Um, so, you know, with that, it's very sad. But we're going to be moving on to some more lighter stories to close out the show. We have tech titans wish to explore their inner 
Muhammad Ali. So we got tech tycoons Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk offered the opportunity by the Italian government to fight in the Rome's Coliseum. Um, TMZ sports rumored that the UFC president Dana White will be organizing the fight. I actually heard he had a call with them for a little bit. I'm sure it would make a ton of money. So both of the tech giants express enthusiasm for battling out in one of the seven wonders of the world. The battle headline will read hashtag versus rocket emoji. Get ready for the clash of the nerds. Well, look, they've been talking on Twitter. Everyone talks a big game until, like Mike, Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. It's all talk. Look, if they actually get in the ring, it will be a terrible fight. They'll have no idea what's going on. But I will respect the balls and gall to actually show up in the Coliseum to battle a fellow billionaire. I don't think it's going to happen, though. I just think they're all talk. These guys want to be seen on the world stage as tough guys, not only in the business realm, but also just in life. They, they want to return to the renaissance man who can do it all. Not just conquer business, but conquer other men as well. So, look, I think it's all a PR game. I think it's an interesting story. It's entertainment for me and the rest of the plebs out here. But at the same time, this isn't going to happen, guys. We're not having these billionaires go at it. And if they do, the rules are going to be so neutered that it's going to be a stupid fight. And that's all I have to say there. Thoughts? I fully agree. Let's get to the, yeah. the next Let's one. Let's get there, to the because... other money story. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next up, we guys, is... Putin actually Saddam. So President Biden confused the world on Wednesday, claiming Putin is, quote, clearly losing the war in Iraq, unquote. With a mischievous smile, Biden confidently shared his opinion outside the White House. Afterwards, even Transportation Secretary Buttigieg looks stupid defending him, stating, quote, Biden is very focused on the details, unquote. <laughs> Biden ended up confusing Iraq and Ukraine twice in 12 hours. Stay tuned to see if Saddam Hussein's body double, Vladimir Putin, will be vanquished by American forces in Iraq. So just kind Bro, of a funny gaffe. Funny gaffe we got run. by Biden. He shouldn't be running, yeah. <laughs> It's not that he shouldn't be running. The best, second best options are pretty crappy, very crappier than him. <laughs> RFK and Crazy Crystal Lady. This is what I I'm said it saying, before. Man. Democrats need real Guys, people. Guys, Biden's man. not running anywhere. Issue. The dude can barely walk. <laughs> All right, he let's falls get to standing Trump. and confuses Iraq. All right, so my final just, story. Just quickly to close out the show. Just to close this out, um, in terms of our polling. So right now, Trump continues to Trump while RFK moves to 17%. So currently, based on the premise poll, which is the most recent poll that came out on June 23rd to 26th, Trump is at 59%, DeSantis is at 21%, Pence is at 6%, Tim Scott is at 3%, Haley's at 3%, Ted Cruz is at 3%, Chris Christie's at 1%, um, Liz Cheney's at 1%, Ramaswamy's at 1%, and Pompeo is at 0%. And if you look at all the contestants that are running in the Democratic primary, so the big three, Biden is at 64%, Kennedy is at 17%, and Marianne Williamson is at 10%. So that's just the update on the polls. So right now, it's still Trump versus Biden that is going to happen. I don't really see any changes coming anytime soon, but we have to stay tuned to find out if any other candidate will you know, pop up in the race. There you go. And with that, guys, that was episode 137 of Politicana. Thank you all for tuning in. Please follow. Please share the podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, we'll catch you next week here on Politicana. Take care.